Okay, this is Dr. Jim Cox. This is November 13th, 2023. And we're going to continue with our discussion, um, talking about Ron Rhodes' book. We're looking in Chapter 15 to begin with. And this would be on looking at uh, around page 177 or so. Let me go here in the book. And uh, we're going to move through this relatively... With, you know me, I don't like to skip scripture, so if we see scripture mentioned, we'll stop and see what the scripture says. So on page 174, in his attempt here in these two chapters is to look at where these things take place. We kind of have an idea of that already, but it kind of gives us a, uh, a review of some of the events that we looked at in the past, some with uh, quite a bit of detail. So on page 174, and this we already talked about the centrality of Israel. Everything focused on looking at Israel. If you want to know where we're at in God's timetable, you take a look at where Israel's at. How do I know that? When the prophecy was given to Daniel in chapter 9, and the prophecy started out by saying, Daniel, this is for your people in your holy city. And we had 69 weeks, weeks of seven years. And then we had a gap. And there's one more week we call the tribulation. It primarily deals with Israel. It's not for the church. Another reason why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. So if we want to know where we're at in the timetable, it was given in Daniel chapter 9. And we can see where we're at. And it relates to Israel and the holy city. So, as we talked about last time, this is the last time we met, that he makes this statement at the end of this section, and he says, if the story, uh, on page 177, he says, if the story of Israel were submitted as a movie script, it would be rejected for being too fantastic to believe. After all, the restoration of sovereignty in our ancestral homeland after 2,000 years the return of the exiles of our people from across the globe, the defense of Israel against implacable enemies, and the transformation of Israel from a desert backwater to a global technological power seem to defy both history and logic. And that's true. I mean, who can explain how a country can be out of their land and scattered all over the world and yet come back and become a nation again. Not only that, to regain their capital in Jerusalem. And now these promise, these prophecies about that starting to make sense. Didn't make sense before. So the next section here is that we see major prophetic events for Israel. Let me also, uh, let me see, I think I skipped. All right, I had a note here. Oh, oh okay, I'm, I'm okay, I know where I'm at. So, major prophetic, we did look at the first one last time. And that was in Ezekiel 37. This Ezekiel was prophesied to be reborn as a nation. This was fulfilled in 1948. And Ezekiel 36, 24 says, 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And this, we see this promise over and over and over again. And uh, by the way, Ezekiel 37 was the valley of the dry bones we talked about last time. Three stages, very dry bones. That meant these bones were all scattered. Dry meant they're dead. Also, the bones come together, making a skeleton. Skin starts to cover it. We have the joints coming together. We have the tendons and the muscles and so forth. And that's what we're seeing today. It's coming together. But it says there's no breath. The breath will occur when they accept the Messiah and become spiritually reborn, the nation of Israel. So that was chapter 37 we talked about last time. It says, following Israel's rebirth, Jews were prophesied to stream back to the Holy Land from every nation in the world. This has been happening yearly since 1948. And it was just a few years ago that for the first time there were more Jews in Israel than there were in New York City in America. And that continues today with the persecution and the anti-Semitism all over the world. We're seeing more and more Jews coming back to their homeland as predicted in the scriptures. And it is predicted over and over again. That was this one verse. And the next thing, which we just talked about a little while ago, was a military coalition of Russia and Muslim nations will invade Israel and God will destroy the invaders in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, we're not going to read through the whole passage again. We've done this before. And uh, I will just point out, uh, we had uh, a handout before and let's, I handed it out, I think, let me see if I can get the number on that. It was when we first covered this quite a while back here, and it had the map on it, and so it was handout number 52, and on the back of the Psalm 83 war annotated that I read earlier, on the back side was this black and white. Now, I gave you another Earlier on in the course, or in the class, I gave you a colored version of that. And it summarizes, I, I did a summary of this Ezekiel 38 and 39. So I'm just going to go through the summary rather than read through chapters 38 and 39. So uh, I mentioned the timing of this, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more here, but which nations? We mentioned three of them before, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Other nations that are mentioned in this passage are Libya, Sudan, and Central Asia, like Afghanistan. You can see them on the map. And these are farther out than the Psalm 83 peoples that we see there. And so the event is the nations invade Israel. Israel's situation is at rest and peaceful, living securely and without walls. Now, I won't read the verse. You can look it up. Now, the timing of this, there are some teachers that I respect. They say that because the Israel's at peace and without walls, it must mean the agreement with the Antichrist has been sealed, signed. 
And Antichrist is offering protection so they can live in peace, in security. And so when that happens, Russia decides to invade Israel. They say, well, it can't be before this because Israel's never at peace and they're never secure. Well, here's a problem. The problem I see is this, that when you look at what happens here, and I think I list this here. Let's go down through the rest of this. This is motive. Who motivates this invasion? Well, it serves God's purpose to put a hook in their nose and lead them into Israel. Why? Because he wants to destroy the armies. And he wants to demonstrate to the world that he's God. So it tells us in there that God leads them to invade Israel. Why? To take plunder, to take spoil, and destroy. They have two motives. One, to destroy Israel because they're anti-Semitic. But the other one is to take their bounty. And Israel's discovering all kinds of oil reserves, gas reserves. But not only that, there's speculation that the gold that Solomon had has never been found. It's never been taken. It's speculated that maybe it's been hidden underneath the Temple Mount or someplace in Israel. And if that's suspected, that could be another reason that Israel could be invaded is for the gold. And we're talking, folks, the amount of gold that Solomon had, trillions and trillions of gold. We're talking major bounty here. So, the invading armies are destroyed by God. There's an earthquake, hailstones with fire, infighting, and disease. Now, here's the aftermath, and I'll get to where I believe, why I believe it occurs before the tribulation. It says, Israel is saved from destruction and acknowledges God. God's name will be known among the nations. Seven years to burn the weapons. I'll come back to that. Seven months to bury the dead, to cleanse the land. Fallen armies are eaten by birds and wild animals. Israel's fortunes are restored, and God's glory is demonstrated. I'll let you look up those verses. But I want to come back to where I said seven years to burn the weapons. This came up as a part of the discussion when I listened to some prophecy teachers. My point is that I doubt if once the millennium starts that Israel will still be burning weapons. Because there's going to be a restoration during this thousand year period. It almost gets to the point where there's no curse on the land. The curse is still there because people still die. So it's not completely removed. But it'll, be, it'll probably be as fruitful as the Garden of Eden was during the millennium period. Say, so I doubt if they would be still burning weapons during the millennium. Now, these other prophecy teachers say, well, I think it's going to start at the beginning of the tribulation, and they'll be, and it may go into the millennium. They think there's no problem with burning weapons during the millennium. We expect to differ. So if you believe they're not going to burn weapons during the millennium, 
then you probably believe that after the rapture occurs, in the scenario that I described, that Russia will take the advantage to invade Israel along with Iran and Turkey and the Central Asian nations, the Muslim nations. If you believe they have to wait for the agreement with the Antichrist to occur, then they'll be burning weapons into that. But here's the problem I see is that I would think there'd be some kind of struggle going on if, if the Arabs are still have their armies and Russia still has their armies. I doubt if Antichrist could get enough power with, these, with the superpower of Russia, being aggressive as they are, allowing some European to come in and take charge. I would have trouble believing that personally. And for them to, with the Arab army still there, allowing Israel to rebuild on the Temple Mount, I would think there'd be a little opposition to that, wouldn't you? I would think the beast or the Antichrist would have uh, a very upset number of Muslim nations very upset with this kind of decision and agreement. I just don't see that scenario happening. However, if the Muslim nation's armies are destroyed, that's not a problem. So, anyways, that's the discussion that goes on with when this is going to happen. And no one doubts that this, it's so clear in scripture, no one doubts that this, this war is going to take place. The only question is, will the Psalm 83 war occur right along with it? That Psalm 83 war occurs, and then right after that occurs the Gog and Magog war, the war that's in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Any questions on that before we move on? All right. The next thing he mentions here is God watches over Israel, and he will neither sleep, neither slumber, nor sleep. And uh, he cites here Psalm 121, 4, it says, Behold, behold he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So, I always, so God always has his eye upon what's going on with Israel. He's not caught by surprise. And then uh, it says, the next thing he mentions here on page 177 is that no weapon formed against Israel will prosper. And he cites Isaiah 54, 17, which says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. And then the next thing he mentions, a Jewish remnant will convert to Christ at the end of the tribulation period. And uh, we talked about this, but let me go ahead and read the account there, and uh, you'll see what happens. So let's go to Zechariah 12. He starts back at verse 6, so I'll start there also. And we're going to read through verse 11. Zechariah 12, 6 through 11. It says, On that day... I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, 
that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ruman in the plain of Megiddo. I guess that was some historical event that occurred in the past. I looked it up at one time to see what went on. Zechariah 13.1, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. And so this is also referred to in Romans chapter 11. And it says that in that day, it says the iniquity will be removed from Zion and all Israel will be saved, the remnant. So we see Paul referring to this as well. And then uh, in the table here, looking at this again, the major prophetic events for Israel, he says, Israel will experience fulfillment of all covenant promises in Christ's millennial kingdom. And we've talked about that. And so uh, we know in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the family of the earth will be blessed. And we've seen that. We've seen that answered. And for those that are opposing Israel right now, I'd remind them of this promise. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. I wouldn't want to be in Hamas's shoes. This promise has never been revoked. It's still in force, and it should be a warning to the United States of who to continue to support. Should be. I see our administration is kind of backing off a little bit at this point, and it disturbs me. They need to go to Genesis 12. I don't think our president has opened the Bible in years, so <laughs> it's probably a bad chance he's going to see this promise. <laughs> What's that, Tom? Probably not. Next thing is <clears throat> Genesis 15. It says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt, the great river, the river Euphrates, the land the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, someone said the termites, but Probably not. Right here, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergeshites, and the Jebusites. In other words, it's going to go, the land's going to go all the way from the River Jordan all the way to the Nile River. They're going to own all that land. They never received it so far, but that's the promise that God is going to give them that. They'll experience that during the millennial period. And then 2 Samuel 7 12 through 13, it says, and he's talking to David here, God. Through the prophet 
and Judge Samuel, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And along with this is 2 Samuel 7, 16. It says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, we know it's going to come through the promise of the Messiah. That will be Jesus from the family of David. But we also read in Ezekiel in several places that David himself will be resurrected. When the Old Testament saints are resurrected, and he will be set as a prince over Israel during that time. If you go back to your notes on the government during the millennium, I pointed that out there in the handouts that are along with that. So, uh, so we see that's going to happen. And then 2 Samuel 22:51, great salvation it brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And then Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is the new covenant. And the new covenant will finally happen. The church has experienced part of this new covenant. People say, well, is there a new covenant for the church? And is there a new covenant for Israel? I personally believe there's only one new covenant, but we're getting some of the blessings from it. If you want to read about that, it's in Hebrew 8, chapter 8. You can go to Hebrew 8 and read about the new covenant and the church participating in that. But ultimately, the new covenant was for Israel. And here it's written in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring, out, bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the new covenant is poured out when they accept Christ as their Messiah. And it says that the law will be written on their heart. And see, that's done for us. When we accept Christ as our Savior, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit comes in. And he'll be in us. And he'll be with us forever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're bought with a price. You're not your own. Glorify Christ in your body. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when we read God's word, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand 1 Corinthians 2, it says spiritually things are spiritually discerned. And one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to help us to understand what we're reading and to spiritually discern it. And so the law is written on our hearts. Now, how do we continue to have that updated? We get into God's Word and the Holy Spirit ministers to us and we start in our heart. Psalm 119, 911 says, How can a young man keep his way, way pure? By guarding according to thy word. I laid up thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 37, 31 says, The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. 
And so we go through the process of renewing our minds through the Word. As we get into the Word, the Holy Spirit uses that to change us and to continue to renew our hearts. And so the law is written, and that's expressed in Ephesians uh, 4.30. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit for which you were sealed until the day of redemption. So when we sin and we don't please, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And I believe that we experience the sadness. We experience that emotionally, that we know that we're not in right fellowship with God. And he gives us the opportunity. First John 1 John 1.9, he says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we feel the, the grieving of the Holy Spirit, God says, confess it. Just agree with me, you've done wrong. And if you do that, I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All right. So we experience this new covenant today in the church, even though originally it was a promise given to Israel as part of the Abrahamic covenant that they would be blessed. Let's go on next to what he talks about next here. Any questions on that? Okay. The next thing, oh, and by the way, on pages 178, 179, there's a summary of what we talked about, about uh, the, the war there. And you can, you can read that on your own. We've gone over it before, like you say. So let's go on to page 180. He says the next thing is the Antichrist will head up a revived Roman Empire. Now, you might remember way back when, and I didn't pull out the old handout, that, that when Daniel was in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he wanted his wise men to tell him what the dream, what was the meaning of the dream. But you remember what else was the stipulation? Why it was so difficult for his wise men to tell him about the dream? Yeah, he said, not only do you have to tell me what it means, you have to tell me what the dream was. <laughs> and they said, nobody could do that. And Daniel says, wait a second, let me pray over it. And God revealed the dream. And it's, and it's man's view of what the kingdoms would look like. And so it was a statue and a beautiful statue, because man believes that their kingdoms are beautiful. God's view is in chapter 7, by the way. We'll look at that. Those are beasts. And so at the head, he says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, the head, the head of gold, that's you. And he says, we come down to the, the chest of silver, the two arms. He says, that's me, Persia. And he come down to the loins of bronze. And that turns out to be Greece. And then it gets down to the legs of iron. Two legs. That turns out to be Rome, east and west. Then finally we get down to the toes. And they were mixed iron and clay. Ten toes. 
He says, that's going to be a nation, the revived Roman Empire coming from the, that, of ten, 10 nations, 10 kings in the last times. But what's going to happen to the statue, you remember from the picture that I had? Okay, stone that was carved out with the human hands. And that stone's gonna come and shatter the statue, which represents all these kingdoms. From Nebuchadnezzar to the last revived Roman kingdom under the Antichrist. That's the picture. So when we get to chapter seven, we see the same thing again, only from God's viewpoint. So I'm not going to read through Daniel chapter 2. We just discussed what that was. You can read through that. And uh, I'll read just to the very last part, verse 44. At the, uh, this is Daniel 2. It says, And in the days of those kings, let me go back just a little bit. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. He's talking about these last, the toes that are these mixture of uh, 10 kings here. Then verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain, by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God is made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So what we see with the statues that God's kingdom is set up to last forever. And all these worldly kingdoms are done away with. We see the same picture but with beasts and I'm just going to read this in Daniel 7, verses 2 through 7. So Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were steering up the great sea. I believe the great sea is the mankind. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the, man, and the mind of a man was given to it. That was Babylon. And then, and behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth and between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. That was Media Persia. I won't get into the small details of that because we had talked about that once before, but, but, so. <clears throat> and then after this I looked, verse six, and behold, like another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. That's talking about Alexander the Great who had four generals. And he was noted for his swift movement to conquer other armies. And then verse seven, after this I saw the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth 
and devoured broken pieces and stamped what was left with his feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And so this is a picture of Rome, but the ten horns eventually related to the ten toes, which are going to be ten kings at the last time. And notice these are described as beasts. That's God's view of these kingdoms, is beasts. And so he goes on to explain this in more detail. And let me go ahead and read it since your author refers to it here. Daniel 7, 16 through 28. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And he said, as for the fourth beast, there should be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it should devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise with them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and put down three kings. Notice that in verse 23 it says, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. So, it's back in the Old Testament we're told, then Antichrist's kingdom will conquer the whole earth. It'll be worldwide. And that's what's being told to Daniel here. And then it goes on to describe the Antichrist here. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time. Three and a half years. Just like it says in the New Testament, in Revelation, 42 months, three and a half years. So there it is right here. But the court shall stand and sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarm me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So, we see the same thing with the rock hitting the image that God's kingdom will be set up, and that's what's described right here, that the kingdom will be given over to the saints of God. Folks, that would be us in that category. And then he, he says here, uh, 
in the revived Roman Empire, he says, um, it will be composed of 10 nations. This is on page 181 in the revived Roman Empire chart. He's got here a table. And he cites two verses here. He says, Daniel 7, 7. After this I saw the night vision, pull a fourth beast, dreadful and seemingly strong, it had great teeth, devoured and broken pieces. Well, it was different than the beasts that were before it and had 10 horns. So that's the 10 nations. And then Daniel 7:20, and about the 10 horns that were on said, the other horn that came up before which seed them fell, the horn that had eyes and mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. So again, the 10 horns again, Represent horn represents power, so during that last time there'll be ten, ten uh, leaders along with the Antichrist. Uh, the next thing he points out is the Antichrist will start insignificantly, but eventually will gain control over the entire empire. And uh, Daniel 7, I'll go to verse 8, it says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So it appears that Antichrist will come out of obscurity, not be recognized, and, and politically, he's adept and work his way through the ranks till he gets the top leadership. Of course, with Satan's help. He'll probably be more charismatic than any leader we've ever seen. I wouldn't doubt it if he wouldn't be a Saul, head and shoulders and handsome. It would look like a king or a leader. He'll be very, very smart, very politically adept. And it appears that he defeats three of these leaders to get into power. That's what it appears on. Because Daniel 7, 24 says, as for the ten horns, uh, this king of ten kings shall rise, another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. We also learn, he also cites here, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 to 10. And uh, I guess I'll go ahead and read that. Uh, I was seeing if I could shorten that up a little bit, but let me just go ahead and read 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 10. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come, unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, said he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I'm just going to stop there. It shows that he himself comes into power, but he gains control of the whole empire, declaring himself to be God. Revelation 13, 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, and ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And that's where we learn that the beast or Antichrist is 
possessed by Satan. He powered, he's powered by Satan, the dragon. And then it goes on to say, one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and, but this mortal wound was healed. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? That's interesting that they worship the dragon. I mean, we're seeing a rise in the occult today. I'll talk about this down the road, but uh, even Paul said in the last days, he says, there'll be men following the doctrines of demons. And we're seeing that more and more today. Satan is even more active today than he's been in the past. And that's what was predicted. Again, setting up the scene for this antichrist that'll be possessed by Satan himself. It goes on here to say that, that uh, and they worship the dragon for he gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, folks. Times, times, times and a half. Three and a half years. Agreeing with what we saw in the Old Testament and other places. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming of his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell on earth. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So those are all believers in that book. If anyone has an ear, let them hear. I'll stop there on that one. And then he goes on here. Margaret, go ahead. That was chapter 13 of Revelation. I'm sorry. He, he listed it here on the. If you look here uh, on the third point, the Antichrist will start out insignificantly, but eventually will gain control over the entire empire on page 181. You see, list Revelation 13, 1 through 10, right there in the table. The next one is, the empire will be terrifying and powerful. And we already looked at that in the Old Testament. He cites uh, Daniel 2:40 and 7, 7. And uh, let me go ahead and I'll go ahead and read those. I have them here. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. Like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So his kingdom will be very, very powerful. Have control. Then Daniel 7, 7, after this, I saw the night vision, behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. That describes his kingdom. Terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. Had great iron teeth, it devoured broken pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It will be it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and had ten horns. The kingdom will be so dreadful that either you take the mark of the beast or you die. That's Antichrist's kingdom. And at the end of chapter 13 it says you cannot buy or sell without the mark of the beast. You'll have to, and those that lived during that time will have to make a decision. Do I take the mark or not? And it tells us in chapter 14 of Revelation, if you take the mark, there's no reversing it. If you've taken the mark, 
then your home is going to eventually be in the lake of fire. That's what it tells us right there in chapter 14. So when you take a mark, it's not a trivial thing. The way God looks at it during the tribulation, if you take the mark, you've made, you've made a, an allegiance to the Antichrist and to Satan himself. Let's just finish this table about out of time. But let's finish this table here. And it says, the empire will not be wholly integrated. And that's Daniel 2. And uh, let me read that, 41 through 43. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it should be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness, firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, and they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So evidently, it appears that this kingdom will have detractors. It seems like there's going to be ten leaders, and they'll be under the power of the Antichrist. But it appears there'll be some dissension in this. And this could be why it seems to me at least, least that when we get to Armageddon it seems like there's some it seems like there's some rebellion going on there that there's some that are and there's a war that occurs before the war of Armageddon you actually had a handout on this and it talks about in Daniel chapter 11 the king of the north and the king of the south challenging the antichrist well we can talk about that next time we're out of time tonight take a look at that. Uh, you know, we covered some ground tonight. Covered a few scriptures. Uh, I look at us to finish up chapter 15, and it won't take us very long at all, and we'll move on to chapter 16 next time. I think there's an outside chance we might be able to move into chapter 17. Last three chapters in the book are more qualitative, dealing with the what we should do in light of the prophecy that we've read. And I think I can cover those probably in one more time. I don't know if I finish it next time, but certainly the time after that I think I can. Which means that in about maybe our third meeting, after this meeting, we might be able to start getting into the new book. Possibly. Like I tell my students when I was teaching, I'm not promising, I'm just saying possibly. Don't, don't hold me to it. I'm not promising. I'm just saying it's likely might be able to get there. So like I said, next time I'll be bringing the book. If you're here, you're welcome to take a copy. And I'll, I'll be bringing them from now on so you make sure you get a copy and can start looking it over. So let me, let me uh, close in prayer tonight. I'm going to stick around if you have any questions for me or anything we covered that you don't understand or like to discuss, uh, I'll stick around. So let me close for us. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are sovereign God. And Father, we thank you that you give us a little glimpse of what's going on. Father, in your, in your word, Paul writes that we should walk in a way worthy of you. And we also read that knowing that you're coming, we should purify our lives. So when you come, we will not be ashamed. We pray that you'd help us walk like that. 
that you enable us with your spirit to glorify you. Your word tells us that whatever we do, whatever we eat or drink, do all to your glory. We pray you'd help us to do that, that we would walk in such a way that when others would see us, they would see Jesus working through our lives. Father, again, we give you all the praise and glory. Thank you for this time tonight. We pray for safety as everyone travels home. Father, we commit these to you in Jesus' name. Amen.